morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. In last week's exposition of Genesis 1-1 to 2-3, we looked at the big picture, the living God who is eternal, personal, sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise, and extravagant, created and formed and filled the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is found therein in six days. And then on the seventh day, God stood back, ceased His work of creating the world, and enjoyed what He had made. The fitting response of us creatures to our Creator is to worship Him, to walk in humility before Him, and to trust Him. We should say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. The one who made heaven and earth is incomparable in wisdom and power and he promises to leverage his wisdom and power for the good of those who trust him. God, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50.10 says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Psalm 50, verse 12. And then He gives this invitation, Call upon Me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify Me. Psalm 50, verse 15. So, that big picture of Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is clear enough. But as I indicated last week, there are other very important matters in this passage that we must not leave unexplored. And the subject that I want to take up today is time. Now, now seems like a good time to pray. So, let's take time to pray. Father, we, we come before You. We know that You are with us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon Your people. And Father, we pray that in these moments of reflection on Holy Scripture that You would be our teacher. That You would illumine our hearts, our ears, our eyes that You would transform our lives, that You would lead us in paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. We, we entrust this reflection on Scripture to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, have Genesis 1 open. We'll read from it momentarily. Uh, time is something that we're all familiar with. We're surrounded by clocks and calendars, dates, and schedules, often in digital form these days. Uh, but time can be a little challenging to wrap your mind around. What is time? Well, our friend Merriam-Webster reports that there are several legitimate definitions of time, and I'm going to share two of those definitions with you. First, time is the measured or measurable period during which an action, process, or condition exists or continues. Second, 
Time is a non-spatial continuum that is measured in terms of events which succeed one another from past through present to future. I bet you haven't thought about that in a while. Uh, but think, think about the fact that time is non-spatial. When God made heaven and earth, He made wide open physical spaces, seas and sky and land, full of objective matter like fishes in the sea, birds in the sky, animals on the land. But when God made things, He didn't make them as a still frame image. When, when God created the world, He didn't create the world frozen in time. The world is not static and unchanging. Instead, the creatures of the world are capable of motion and development and of change in their relationships one to another. And these interrelated and successive actions and events and processes constitute the unfolding of time. Time is the non-spatial continuum in which creatures act, experience, grow, and move. And this general conception of time includes specific periods of measurable duration. Now Genesis chapter 1 makes clear that God is the creator of time. God exists eternally apart from time. And before time, God is a timeless being. He transcends time and is not bound by time, although He's able to create time and He can speak and act into time if He so chooses, which He, which he does. Now, lest you think I'm being abstract and philosophical, the notion of time jumps right off the pages of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Shall we seek to understand the time the time marker is called day and week and year. Then pay close attention to what it says at the very beginning of the Bible. And so in this message, I want to do three things. Number one, I want to call your attention to the time references and time markers that are in the text that we ought to understand. Number two, I want to draw out a key discipleship lesson from the teaching. And then third, I want to call your attention to some other important development of these things in the rest of the Scriptures. So let's begin with the duration of time called day. And as we do this, I'll also address a common, commonly asked question, how long were the days of Genesis chapter 1? So look at, look at verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated day has a range of possible meanings, and determining the specific meaning that is intended in a particular expression depends on the context. The first time the word day occurs is at the beginning of verse 5. God called the light day. 
In this instance, day means daytime. We, we speak the same way, which is defined in contrast to the nighttime and the darkness he called night. The second time the word day occurs is at the end of verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And a similar expression occurs in verses 8, verse 13, 19, 23, and 31 at the end of each of the six days. In these places, the word day is being used to describe the duration of time that includes both daytime and nighttime. So here's the question. This is not, this is not uh, rocket science by any means, but you really should think through these things because they're right here in the text. What constitutes a day according to verse 5? The answer can be expressed in various ways, but here, here, here's the answer. A day is one complete cycle of darkness and light. One complete cycle of daytime and nighttime. One complete cycle of evening and morning. That's, that's, what, a, that's what a day is. Now, we're, go down to verse 14. Prior to verse 14, God caused the light to shine without utilizing the sun, the moon, and the stars. Doing that sort of thing is not difficult for God to do. Light and darkness, day and night, evening and morning, came before the mediating ministry of the sun, moon, and stars. But on the fourth day, God created the heavenly luminaries in order to mark the passage of time on earth. So look at verse 14. Remember, the, the, the day and the daytime and nighttime structure is already in place from day one, and now it says in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Once again, we see the concepts of daytime and nighttime. The greater light, which is the sun, will rule the daytime. The lesser light, which is the moon, will rule the nighttime. Furthermore, the purpose of these heavenly lights is not only to rule daytime and nighttime, and not only to give light on the earth, but also to function as time markers. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And so, henceforth, the passage of one day upon the earth is connected to the light of the sun and the light of the moon. What is one day? One complete cycle of light and darkness. One complete cycle of daytime and nighttime. One complete cycle of evening and morning. And now we can add, in view of verse 14, one complete cycle under the greater light, which is daytime, and under the lesser light which is nighttime. The subsequent scientific insight about the Earth's rotation on its own axis 
corresponds to what we see in Genesis chapter 1. The sun stands still at 93 million miles away, and the complete cycle of light and darkness upon the earth happens because the earth is rotating on its axis, thereby exposing the entire planet to a cycle of facing the sun and not facing the sun in a 24-hour time period with the moon reflecting a slice of the sunlight during the night. Now I trust that this brief study provides an an answer to the question, how long are the days of Genesis chapter 1? That's not a difficult question to answer. Each of the six days constituted one cycle of light and darkness, one cycle of daytime and nighttime, one cycle of evening and morning, and once you get into and pass day four, one cycle of passing through the daytime sun and the nighttime moon. And so what this means is that each of the six days was a complete 24-hour rotation of the earth on its axis. This understanding is reinforced by the subsequent scriptural teaching that the seven-day week of the Israelites was to be deliberately patterned after God's seven-day week in creation. From Exodus chapter 20, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We'll, we'll, we'll return to the concept of a week shortly, but let's turn to some other measurements of time. Although Genesis chapter 1 does not go into detail about how the heavenly lights will function as markers for signs, seasons, and years, the root of this reality is right there in the text in verse 14. And what do we find in the record of history? The overwhelming testimony of human history from ancient times until the present time, is that we mark so much of the passage of time, of seasons, of festivals, of months and years, in relationship to the sun and the moon. Human society throughout the course of history is full of solar calendars. Calendars based on the earth's movement around the sun. Lunar calendars calendars based on the moon's movement around the earth, and lunisolar calendars, which combines both concepts. Our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is a solar calendar. As we already saw in Genesis 1.14, the heavenly lights are designed to mark not only the passage of days, but also the passage of years. And once again, the passage of a year involves the inter- interplay between the earth and the sun. And maybe the moon. What is a year? Well, it depends. A solar year is the amount of time it takes for the earth to complete one revolution around the sun. This amount of time is just a bit shy of 365.25 days. A lunar year is 12 
29 and a half day cycles of the moon, which gives you around 354 days. One cycle of the moon, about 29 and a half days, constitutes a lunar month. So, the passage of time on earth is directly related to the relative positions of the sun and or the moon in relation to the earth. Genesis 1.14 also says that the heavenly lights are for signs and for seasons or for appointed times. This seems, some, some, this seems uh, open-ended, doesn't it? doesn't spell it out exactly, but it lays a foundation. One commentator suggests that the signs include navigational signs for those who are sailing the high seas. One also thinks of the alternating seasons of the years, the equinoxes and the solstices. Summer and winter, seed time and harvest. One way or another, Genesis 1.14, the reality there gets expressed in myriad ways around the world. Icelanders celebrate the summer solstice and stay awake to watch the midnight sun. Must be beautiful. Asians, if, if, if any of you were dialed into the news recently, Asians celebrate the lunar, lunar New Year just half February 1st. And they celebrate it with festivals and rituals. In Western Christianity, how is the date of Easter determined? Go to the spring equinox. Find the full moon that occurs on or after that date. Then go ahead of the next Sunday. That's Easter Sunday. In the Old Testament, God instructed the people Israel to offer sacrifices at the appointed times. Numbers 28 and 29 gives instruction about the daily offerings, the weekly offerings, the monthly offerings, and the annual offerings. The monthly offerings were to take place at the beginning of the new moon, and thus at the beginning of the new month. Of course, Israel often abandoned the spirit of true worship, which is why the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 1, bring no more vain offerings. Incense, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. But the problem was not worshiping the Lord in connection with the new moon. The problem Rather, was that the, worshiper, the worshipers were spiritually disconnected from the Lord. In any case, my primary point here is to highlight that marking days, months, and years in relation to the heavenly luminaries and seeing them as signposts of seasons and even as compass points is all in accordance with God's design. That's the world that we live in. The problem, of course, is that those who turn away from the Lord will inevitably abuse the design. And God is not amused when human beings turn physical objects, even very impressive physical objects like the sun, into objects of spiritual devotion, which has happened far too often in the course of human history. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 to 5, is clear. 
if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones." Here's the point. Learn the proper and limited use of the heavenly luminaries from Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 19. But if you transgress those boundaries and wade into astrology and horoscopes, you are exposing your soul to grave danger. Be sure of this there are not lucky stars for you to think. And the secret of life is not to be found in the alignment of the stars. Don't go there. Now, so far we've considered days and years, months and seasons, but we have not yet considered the week. And it's fascinating to consider the week because the day, the month, and the year, along with various seasons, are marked by the position of the earth in relation to the position of the sun and the moon. By God's design, the passage of time on earth happens under the administration of the sun and the moon. And yet, the week stands out as altogether different. The seven-day week is not based on astronomical considerations. The seven-day week is based on God's freely chosen, utterly unique, and clearly communicated work week when He created the world. He worked six days and then He rested on the seventh day. And as God's image bearers, we are to pattern our week after the way that God established His creation week. We work six days and then we rest on the seventh day. The seventh day is the capstone of the week. Genesis 2-3 says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The seventh day, later called the Sabbath day, is the day when you get to enjoy the fruit of your labor from the previous six days. And at a deeper level, the seventh day is the day when you enter into God's rest. When you slow down and enter into the blessedness and holiness which He has assigned to the seventh day. Many believers hold the conviction that the seventh-day Sabbath day was transposed into the first day Lord's Day because our our Lord rose from the dead and inaugurated the new creation on the first day of the week. But either way, we live within the reality of a seven-day week for the simple reason that God built it into the structure of the world. Thus, we live in a world that has a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm, a monthly rhythm, and an annual rhythm. So I say, friends, welcome to the non-spatial continuum and measurable durations of Genesis chapter 1. Now somebody's really asking the question, okay, 
Where are you going with this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this is, this is the question I want to ask. So what? What difference should this make to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? More than you might think. So let me, let me give you the short answer. You are always on God's time. This expression might sound a little familiar to you, for we will sometimes speak about employees being on company time. That is, they're on the clock, and while they're on their clock, they're supposed to do their duties, and they can expect to be compensated accordingly. One of the lessons of Genesis chapter 1 is that God has established the world in such a way that you, a mere creature, always live and move and have your being within the framework of time that God has established. And the scriptural testimony is clear that you must look beyond the framework of time to the God of glory who set the framework up. And so the discipleship lesson is, you are always on God's time. Now let's unpack it. I find it very interesting and instructive that when God assigned dominion to mankind, He did not put the sun, moon, and stars under our charge. Look at verse 26, Genesis 1:26, beginning with the second sentence. God's referring to His creation of mankind, and He says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God appointed us as His stewards to oversee and administrate the sea creatures, and the sky creatures, and the land creatures, and the earth as a whole. But the lights in the expanse of the heavens are not under our administration. And I want you to think about the significance of this. Since earthly life is dependent on the light and heat of the sun, and since the sun is not under our dominion, we can immediately see how dependent we are on something that is not under our control. The very way that God fashioned the heavens and the earth testify to the fact that we are dependent creatures. Further, since the heavenly lights are not under our dominion, and since the heavenly lights are there to rule over daytime and nighttime, and to mark the passing of days and years, the logic is inescapable. Time is not under our dominion. Time is not under our control. No thanks to us. The sun keeps shining. No thanks to us, the earth keeps spinning. No thanks to us, the earth keeps revolving around the sun. No thanks to us, the moon keeps orbiting the earth. No thanks to us, the mornings and the evenings, they keep a-coming. We frail creatures of dust must know and understand that the administration of time is fixed in the heavens. But the point of all this is not to stand up in glad adoration of the blazing sun and the brilliant moon. No. Instead, you're supposed to look up and see God's glory and majesty and power reflected in the heavenly lights. How great is our God if the earth is His footstool and heaven is His throne and the clouds are like the dust 
from his feet. Human beings cannot get near the sun. And yet, God holds the sun in his hand. He created it. He put it in its place. He assigned it its purpose. And when its purpose is complete, to fast forward to the end of the story, the saints in glory will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. But for now, the heavenly Markers of time are signposts of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 and from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. When I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place, what is man that You are mindful of him and the Son of man that You care for him. One implication of all this is that God's glory stands over time. You are supposed to look up and be humbled before a personal and transcendent God, and then you are supposed to steward the time given to you in a way that honors Him. In a similar way, the seven-day week stands forth as a testimony that this is God's world, not ours. He made the world in accordance with His timetable, not ours. And He established the seven-day week as a pattern for our week with an open invitation to share in the happiness and the holiness of the seventh day. God's claim upon time, just like His claim upon the world, is absolute. Time is from Him and through Him and for Him. And it is fitting, therefore, that in Those two chapters I referenced earlier, Numbers chapter 28 and 29, it's fitting that God specifically gave Israel the daily offering, the weekly offering, the monthly offering, and the annual offerings. God puts the stamp of His authority on all time, and God makes it clear that our priority at all times must be covenant relationship with Him. That's the lesson. You are always on God's time. There is no time when you are free to ignore the instruction of Colossians 3.17 which says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You're always on God's time. Now, the final thing I want to do in this sermon is to take this foundational teaching that God is sovereign over time and remembering the discipleship lesson that therefore we're always on His time and thus should live for His honor and glory. And I want to show you some of the ways that this truth unfolds in the rest of the Scriptures. And at the same time, this will prepare us for the Lord's Supper. So, Here we go. The world that God created in the first six days has continued to be upheld by Him ever since. In fact, the eight verses that Tom read this morning from Psalm 119 declared that truth. God God upholds the earth and its cyclical positions in relation to the sun and the moon with such constancy that it functions as an illustration of His covenant faithfulness. After God promised the, 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 the wonders of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, God then said this 
in verses 35 to 37. Listen carefully. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What's the point? The reliability and immeasurability of the heavens is a window into the reliability and immeasurability of God's steadfast love. Although God has a special love for His covenant people, He demonstrates genuine care for all people. And one way that He demonstrates care for all people is the provision of sunlight and rainfall even for evil and unjust human beings. Jesus told His followers, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And that final verse that I just read reminds us of the important biblical truth that the natural world is not a closed system. If the natural world were a closed system, then everything that happened inside of the system could be explained by something else that is inside of the system. And some people, many people, live in that delusion. The natural world is all that ever was or will be. And it accounts for everything that has happened or will happen. But the Bible's teaching is very different. The Bible teaches that the natural world is a reliable system, but not a closed system. It's an open system. What did Jesus say? Your Father who is in heaven makes His Son rise and sends rain. Your Heavenly Father is outside the system. But He causes things to happen inside the system. Now this should cause you to take heart. Because as wonderful as the sun is, And as delightful as the moon is, and as impressive as the stars are, these heavenly luminaries are unfeeling toward you. They don't care about you one way or the other. They're not looking out for you. They are inanimate objects with a job to do, and they do their job. But these heavenly luminaries are in the hand of a Father who loves you. And they do His bidding every day. And consider this. The sovereign God who placed the lights in the sky to mark the passage of time on earth, He knows every detail about the passage of your time on earth. Does that comfort you? David prayed to God, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The Lord directs the steps of those who trust Him, and He engages His resources for their good. 
The Lord is your keeper, it says in Psalm 121. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, no one should fear that time might be against you if God your heavenly Father is for you. Remember this, neither things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not think time is not on our side if God is on your side. And these, these lavish promises are because all things are God's servants, which, was, which also showed up in, in Tom's reading this morning. We didn't collaborate. And God's will is that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things do God's bidding. If God wants to cause the sun and the moon and the earth to halt their ordinary movements in order to extend the daytime for the benefit of His embattled people. He is free to do so. Read Joshua chapter 10, verses 1-14. to If God wants to interrupt the ordinary shining of sunlight upon a particular place and instead impose pitch darkness over an entire land for three days because the people are under His judgment. He is free to do so. Read Exodus 10, verse 22. If God wants to appoint a unique star to shine over the little town of Bethlehem so that wise men from the east can discern the sign of the coming King and they can follow that star to worship the King. That is not difficult for God to do. See Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And so it is that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's Son is greater than the physical Son, for He is the true light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John 1.9 The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.5 And in John 8.12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As the faithful Son, Jesus knew that He was always on His Father's time. And He lived accordingly. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on My own authority, but speak just as the Father taught Me. And He who sent Me is with Me. He has not left Me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 28 and 29. Jesus always lived on His Father's time and He knew that His life was directed towards one crucial hour 
when He would bear the sins of the world. And when that hour drew near, He prayed, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And when Jesus was lifted up on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, do you remember what happened? The God who holds the heavenly luminaries in His hand and orchestrates all that comes to pass. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The light of the world was enveloped in darkness because He bore in our place the Father's dreadful judgment upon our sin. And when you come into the presence of the true light, the light of the sun and the light of the moon and the light of the stars fade into the background. What they offer is cold and lifeless in comparison to this holy sacrifice. Rightly did Isaac Watts say, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty Maker died for His own creature's sin. And in the words of Stuart Townend, there in the ground His body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave He rose again. And as He stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am His and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. This Lord Jesus Christ has been appointed to be the proper ruler over all of your daytimes and over all of your nighttimes, over all of your rhythms of day and week and month and year, over all of your working and resting, for He is preeminent in all things. If by faith you live as a disciple who is always on His time, then at the end of your earthly pilgrimage, He will bring you into the glory of His everlasting kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Ascribe to Him all glory, honor, and praise. In words from one final hymn, crown Him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for Thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Let's pray. Father, all that we have, all that we are, all that we hope to be, we are yours. We are your creatures. We belong to you. And Father, I pray that you would so transform our lives that we would reflect your beauty, your glory, and your love in the way that we conduct our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.